Well, good morning. Great to be with you today. Welcome to Cultivate. Uh, my name is Jay. I get to pastor this fine community. And we call this a family gathering because we're the family of God and we get to gather. Um, so we talk a lot about the church being the people and not just the building. So welcome to the church. And uh, we hope that you uh, have a great uh, morning with us. We are in the middle of a series uh, that we're doing um, called Exiles. It's a series that we're going through the book of First Peter. So if you find that there is a Bible under the seat in front of you and you want to read along, we're actually on page 840. If you'd like to do that, we encourage you to do that. By the way, those Bibles, if you want one, if you don't have one but you need one, they are free to take. So please feel free to do that and to read it. Um, we are, have been doing this series called Exiles, and we're calling it Exiles because um, we really feel um, that the Bible and, um, and we, as a result of reading it and sharing in the life of it, are being equipped as the church, which means that we're being equipped as God's family to kind of be an exiled people for Him in the world. And so God, what He has been up to since the beginning of time, since we, we kind of you know, wrecked the whole thing and rebelled against Him and kind of went our own way. He's been pursuing a people for Himself, calling them out of the world, and then sending them back into the world to show the rest of the world what He's like. That's what God has been up to. And so He's been taking a people, and we're part of that people here, uh, to do this same work. That we're to be strangers in the world that demonstrate what He's like by the way that we live our lives and tell people what He's like by our words and our deeds. Um, and so the last couple of weeks, just to recap, what we've been doing is the first we've talked a lot about identity. The fact that we've been made God's family because of Jesus. So He is now our Father and the church is now our brothers and sisters. And so what would it look like for us to act that way, to live out of that identity? Um, we're also servants of Jesus in the world. He served us when He went to the cross on our behalf and we serve Him in the world to show everyone else what He's like. And we've been filled with the Spirit too. And so we're missionaries in the world that God has actually given us the power and the resource to go out and to tell the world what He's like and to live a different life so that people would go, there's something different about this community from the rest of everyone else. I wonder what that thing is. And then we would match our demonstration with our proclamation. We would say it's actually because of Jesus and what He's done for us. So that was kind of week one. And then week two, we talked about the role of trials last week. Uh, that God actually uses trials and fire to refine our faith. And the point of that is, not so that we would think, man, I don't know if God is with us and for us. The point would be, we know He's with us and for us, and He's put us through trials. And the reason is so that we would actually come to the end of ourselves and have to depend on Him. Because that's actually the only way that we grow up into Christ is when we need Him. And so God in His grace actually gives us opportunities where we would go, I am at the end of myself. I cannot pull off the resources I need to get myself out of this situation. And God goes, good, I'm glad you learned the lesson. Now depend on me and watch me work it by my power. So that's been kind of the first two weeks of the series. And um, we're, we're going through this and I, I've been kind of wanting to do this series for a while um, because I think it, First Peter speaks to our situation. I mean our by saying kind of the church in North America and the West and America um, in the 21st century, unlike 
probably any other book in the Bible. Because the book of 1 Peter is written to a bunch of scattered churches who are entirely on the margins of their society. You might have heard me use that phrase, um, that word last week in talking about Shadrach in Haiti, of people who have no kind of worldly power. They're not at the center of their society. They, they, they're not setting the trends of the world that they live in. They're on the margins. And, and that's very much where the people that Peter is writing to, they find themselves too. And it's actually, if we're being honest, where the church finds itself where we live today, especially probably in the Northeast in, in New Jersey. And so I, I know that you've been wanting the whiteboard to come back because you're missing my um, really ornate and detailed drawings. <laughs> Actually, I th- Lily did a better job than I <laughs> writing her name than I probably will in the drawing. But I wanted to kind of illustrate what's happened with the church and actually where we find ourselves today and see if it doesn't resonate with you, okay? So if you're visiting with us, this is kind of a family chat, but I want, want us to kind of wrestle with this a little bit. So if, if this circle kind of represents culture, it, it represents um, art and science and education and politics and morality, Kind of everything that's true about a society. Okay? You got that in your mind? It's setting the trends of society. It's saying this is how it works. If you rewind the clock about 50 years, maybe more like 70 years now, um, the church existed in the middle of that circle. You like my drawing? It's excellent, isn't it? And, and so, as, as being part of the center of culture, it was setting the trends. If you wanted to be anyone in politics, you needed to go to church on Sunday and prove that you were an upstanding citizen that has the, the capability to be in politics. If you wanted to be in education, education was part and parcel of the church. And the church had massive influence in the way that kids were educated and what they were educated with. Same thing with morality. If you want to know what's right from wrong, who do you go to? 50 years ago, 70 years ago. You'd go to the church to find out. It's at the center of culture. That's why all the churches are are built on the main street. And they would all ring their bells and then everybody would come to the center of town and they would go to church, right? Right? Um, and all you'd have to do is signal to the rest of, of, of the society that church was open and people would come to it. So everybody's coming to it to find out because it is part of the center of society. So what's happened in the last 50 years? What's that? <laughs> Special interest group. Separation. If I were to define it, has the church shifted? Has it gone anywhere? Church is in the same place as it was. You drive down the same main streets and many of those churches, they're still standing. They have a whole lot less people in them, but they're still there. What happens to, what's happened to culture? Culture has moved. It no longer exists with church at the center, right? And so, if you're thinking about politics... There's not much church involved in it. Actually, I was reading an article yesterday that said that there, 
is a movement going on for presidents not to be sworn in on the Bible anymore. And, and the reason being is they're saying, look, we don't hold to the Bible anymore, so why should somebody swear themselves in on it? Wouldn't it make more sense if they swore themselves in on the Constitution or on some kind of set of moral laws? And in some level, they're exactly correct, right? Because culture has shifted. The church no longer sets the norm in terms of what's politically acceptable anymore. Same thing with education, right? And what else? Science. What else? Morality, right? I mean, think of all the areas of culture. All of them, in some sense, have shifted away from it. So what are some of the other influences now that the church is on the margins and not at the center? Media. That's a great one. I don't know how to... Maybe. Yeah, right. I don't know. What else? Government? Yep, so government is a factor. I'm just going to do a G because who knows how to. (laughs) What else? What else? Parenting? Well, what's influencing parenting? I mean, so you got to think, so the church used to be the center influence and now it is no longer. What other things are influencing parenting? The internet? Is, is Christianity now the only kind of accepted religion in society? No. What other ones do you have? Yeah, you've got Islam. You have Judaism. Yeah, you have science, right? I'm going to try to draw an atom here. Huh? Huh? So here's the question I want us to kind of wrestle with because it's the same one that Peter wrestles with. How in the world does the church continue to live out its mission to show and demonstrate and tell what God is like when no one is coming to it anymore to ask the questions that they used to ask? How does it continue to be faithful to God's mission when it's increasingly marginalized? How is that working? Well, the typical response has been, let's do what we've always done, but let's do it better. It was more, you know, more, more pizzazz. Let's, just, let's do bigger events, right? With better worship. And more relevant teaching. If we can just convince people again that the church should have a voice, then they'll come from their sphere back into the church. Maybe we need to have better programs and teach people parenting skills. And if we do that well enough, if we have enough classes or enough special programs that people would be interested in, and we just hit every demographic, then all those people will come to those various things. They'll come into the church and be part of it again. Maybe we just need to be more relevant and cool Maybe we need to wear jeans and untuck our shirts. <laughs> Use an iPad. Yeah, I don't have one of those this morning. See, Peter, he's writing to the same type of church that we are. 
Isn't that interesting? The church that he's writing to has no power or influence in society, or at least very little. And so he's got a mission. He's saying to them, I want you to exist for God's mission, but you're going to need to figure out how to do it on the edge of society and not at its center. And so for us as the church, we have a big lesson to learn, right? If we're going to do the same thing, because we are, believe it or not, in the same situation. So it's interesting because what Peter tells them to do, it is so simple. It's so radically simple that we're liable to go, that can't be it. It's got to be something else because if it's that, then everyone would be doing it. And yet he gives them this advice which, if we're not careful, we'll gloss over without making it our own. So this is where we're going to come into 1 Peter 1. And we're going to just start out with verses 13 through 15, and it's on page 40 if you're following along. He says, therefore, in light of everything that we've talked about so far, in light of our identity as God's family, in in light of being filled with His Spirit, in light of the trials that God may bring into our lives to test us and refine our faith, in light of the salvation that He's brought to you through Christ that you did not earn, but He gave you, in light of all those things, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is Peter's missionary strategy to the world for His marginalized church. Be holy because I'm holy. It's actually a quote of Leviticus 19.2 where God had called out a people to Himself and He says, as I am, so you should be because if you are, the world's going to take notice. See, Peter knows that it's inevitable for them when they come to know Jesus that they're going to become marginalized. Just by virtue of deciding that they're going to make Jesus their Lord, they're also deciding at the very same time that they're going to make other people not their Lord. In particular, a really powerful guy named Caesar. And if you wanted to be in the in crowd, in culture, if you wanted to set direction in here, you needed to be cool with this guy named Caesar because he rules everything in life. So when you say, no, no, actually he isn't Lord, but Jesus is my Lord, you're saying in a sense, I'm no longer going to be in this circle. I'm now moving to the margins. And that's going to create some tension for the church. And so he wants this scattered church to understand that this is not an accident. This is actually God's plan for them to be set apart as holy. Because it's their holiness that will transform them. It's their holiness that will change the world that they live in. So let me ask you this. We can kind of dialogue just for a second. What images come to your mind when I say the word holy? Angels? Perfect? The cross? How about if I were to say to you, that guy thinks he's so holy. (laughs) Changes it a little bit, right? If somebody were to say that same thing to you, that person is holy, are you more likely to take it as a positive or a negative? 
Why? Yeah, it does. Right. So only only describe it as people who deserve it. Right? <laughs> is the moral. What? It's twisted the way we've looked at it, right? What what kind of images come to your mind when you think of somebody who's holy? What's their life look like? Nothing wrong. Completely perfect in everything that they do. What's that? They're broken. Okay. Kind of, yeah. So, in a sense, broken and open to God using them. Anyway. Self-righteous? Sometimes, yeah. Do they tend to be around a whole lot of people or by themselves? <laughs> Above or without a whole lot of people around? Yeah, that's true. Some, like Mother Teresa, surround themselves with others. Yeah. Being godlike. Yeah. See, holiness, at least according to Peter, is actually an essential quality to be the church. Um, and so, I think, we, so whenever we use a term, we all come to the table with different ideas about what that term is like. So you all have those ideas going on in your minds. I just want you to keep them there for a second, because I think the way that Peter's going to frame it will challenge all of our understandings of the way that we use the word. So the first thing he says is this, to be holy, and we're going to talk about a couple things, To be holy is to live as a called-out people. It's to live as a called-out people. The word holy, if you look in the Old Testament, actually means something like set apart, to be cut out. Sometimes they used it of a garment um, that had maybe... The the garment is kind of tearing and wearing away, but there's a really great part of the garment that they want to reserve and preserve for another piece. And so they'll, they'll make that holy. They will cut it out of the garment, and then repurpose it and use it in another location. So it means to be kind of pulled out of one area and then reused in a different way um, for another purpose. So, And God does that, right? Those of you who were part of the story, we've heard kind of time and time again examples of God going into the world, taking out a person or a people, giving them a new purpose, and then sending them out into the world for that new purpose, right? Can you think of a couple examples? Paul, that's a great one, yep. Joseph, yep. Noah is a great one, right? So what does God do with Noah? He, he saves him from the impending flood, and then after he saves the, him, he says, go and be fruitful and multiply. He sends him on a new purpose. How about another one? Jonah's a great one. Yeah, he's kind of the resistant holy person who, who God ransoms and rescues from the fish or through the fish and then gives a, a new direction to. All the disciples, yeah. People who are fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. He takes them from their old life, gives them a new identity, and then sends them out and says, go and make disciples of all nations. What's that? Job? Yeah, he kind of has a refining through fire, right? And and comes out on the other side learning some really valuable lessons about who God is. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jesus is the same. So Peter, I think what he's doing is he's saying about the church the same things that we've said about all these individuals. God calls them out of the world. He gives them a new identity. And then He gives them a new direction. And He says, I I want you to realize that being holy isn't about your conduct first and foremost. It isn't about kind of making yourself into a better person. It's not about willing yourself to be better. He wants you to know that it begins with God and what He does in us and through us and with us. The church is a people who have primarily been purchased out of the world by Jesus. And it's nothing that we did to earn that purchase. It's entirely God's work. So last week, you remember, we talked about um, Peter saying that we have new birth through His mercy. It was God's mercy that made us part of His family. We didn't choose God. God actually pursued us in mercy and love and then ransomed us from our old life to give us new direction and purpose. So being holy first means that we need to live in light of who God has created us to be already. You can see this when Peter says this, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do children choose their families? No, right? They may want out of their families, but they don't choose their families. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance. And then he says later on in verse 21, through Him, meaning Jesus, you believe in God who who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. You want to know the way to defeat evil desires in your life? To become more holy, as it were? It's not willpower. It's not doing enough good things in your life to try and counterbalance the bad things that you do. The only way for our lives to actually become more holy in conduct is when we become more convinced that our faith and our hope come from God alone. Another way to say this is, that every sin that we commit is a matter of unbelief. Everything that we do, that we know we should not do, is because we do it not believing that God is who He is. Every time we do things or don't do things that we know we should do, it's because we do not yet fully believe in the grace that's been given to us through Jesus. And so, you may ask, why do I covet? Why do I desire other people's things? It's because deep down in your heart, you don't believe that God is a good Father and He's given you what you need to survive and to thrive in life. Why am I jealous of other people? It's because I believe that life is really about me and not about Him. And so when somebody else gets credit or glory, when I don't receive it, I get jealous of them because their attention and their affection is not set on my heart. Who is that really saying life is about? It's about us. Why don't I give or seek forgiveness of people? It's because deep down in my heart, I don't really feel like I needed to be forgiven of anything. And when God comes to me and says, no, you need forgiveness in Christ and I've provided it to you, we say, no, thank you. I didn't need it because I can earn it myself. 
If that's the disposition of your heart, you will never be able to forgive other people because you think that you're better than them. See, a heart that fully believes in the grace and hope that comes from God understands rightly who we are and who God is. And that understanding, that belief, actually frees us up to live in the way that we should. Peter's saying, we need to have this mindset about ourselves. And we need to inspect every area of our life to see if it does or does not match up to the grace that comes through the Gospel. He says we need to prepare our minds for action. The literal Greek way to say that is to gird up the loins of your mind. That's a really weird phrase. Um, But in society in that day, the the men would wear kind of long flowing robes. And if they were going to prepare themselves for action, everything was kind of held together with a belt in the center. And if you wanted to run anywhere, it was going to be really difficult for you to do it with this long robe going on because you'd eventually trip over yourself and make a fool out of yourself. And so what they would do is they would take the robe and they'd tuck it into their belt. They would gird themselves up so that they'd be unencumbered in order to run if, if the occasion so called for it. So Peter is saying we need to do the same sorts of things. We need to take everything that's kind of encumbering us in terms of our belief system, the lies that we've kind of let run rampant in our minds, and we need to take captive of those things and put them in their proper place so that we could be freed up to live the kind of life that God has for us. Because God desires for us to be holy. So we should be asking ourselves constantly, with this aspect of my life, and you can fill in the blank, who am I really trusting in? Who has the final authority in this area? Whose opinion is the weightiest in this area? Do my hope and my faith truly lie in God and who He is and what He's done for me? Are they rooted in my new identity? Or are they still being conformed by the evil desires before we knew God and what He's done for us? Whose approval do you most yearn for in life? See, you may say it's God's knowing that you have it, and then when you go to work on Monday morning, you kill yourself to get your boss's approval because you need to earn His grace and His love in order to feel like you've accomplished something at the end of the day. We may say that our affections are most set on God and what He says about us. But whose love do we most yearn for? Is it the love of our Father who gives it to us freely or is it the love of a boyfriend that may not? Where do your hope and your faith lie? See, if we forget who we are, we actually forget what makes us different from the rest of the influences in the world. We need to remember that God has made us holy and so that we would look vastly different from the world in our conduct. But sometimes we become so concerned with being accepted by the world that we wish to be just like it. And so instead of living as exiles, instead of living as a a people that are to be looked differently, we live as immigrants. 
And we become just like the culture that dominates the rest of everyone's desires, the people that we live among. We're going to be a people that live on the margins, that we have to realize that we're a people whose most powerful aspect, most powerful attribute, the thing that makes us most different is that we have a life and a message that are unlike anything else that the world has to offer. We have a freedom that no one else has ever experienced because of Christ. We have a hope that no one else has ever known because of Him. We're we're part of God's family, and because of that, we're dearly loved children. That should make us look different. The more we become like the world, the less we have to offer it. But the more we allow our life to be ruled by the Gospel, the more we begin to look like the one who saved us for it. Here's the second thing. We, being holy not just means that we live as a called out people. That's kind of the thing that most people think of first. There's a second aspect to it. Being holy means that we are sent into the world for God's mission. See, the opposite danger to being an immigrant is to be a tourist. You know what a tourist does? A tourist visits a place but never becomes part of it. It never enters into the location. They just tour it. They get the the glossed version of it because they know that they're not staying for any length of period of time. And so they never invest themselves in it. They just take from it and then go back to their normal life. If we're going to be holy, it means that we need to be set apart for the things that God cares about and not just for Him. So holiness does not mean withdrawing from the world. This has been one of the major flaws in the church's attitude, I would say, over the last hundred years. Because we've bought into the lie that we need to be separate from the world in order to be holy. And so rather than say, we're going to be a people that go into the world to influence education and politics and science and medicine and morality and all these things with the grace and the power of God. We say, no, no, we're going to be separate from the world and we're going to create our own schools and we're going to create our own clubs and our own sports teams and our own you fill in the blank. We're going to do it all separately over here so that we don't become tainted by the world and its corruption. I want to submit to you that when we do that, what we're saying with our lives is that the world's ability to corrupt is more powerful than the Gospel's ability to save. I can't come to any other conclusion besides that one. And I hope that that kind of rings in our ears that we would go, wait a second, that's not true. The Gospel is the power to save for anyone that would believe. We need to believe that in such a way that we don't try to just protect ourselves by separating, but we actually move into the world and become a part of it. To be exiles. Because... God's purpose is not for us to be separate. God's purpose is to redeem and to save the world. To make it restored back to the way that He created it originally to be. 
And the reason that God has ransomed us out of the world is so that we would join Him in that mission to do the work in the world. That's why Peter says this. He says, Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here. Literally, that means your temporary residence. Move into the neighborhood, so to speak. And do it in reverent fear. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. In other words, believe in the power of God to save you and live in fear of Him, not in fear of the world. Live in the world and accomplish the work that God's given you to do. Because you will not be holy apart from doing it. Even Jesus prayed this. So maybe Peter's like a wacko, you know. But Jesus, he's got the real deal going. And he, it turns out he gives us the very same message. In his last prayer for those who would follow after him, he actually says this. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world but that you would protect them from the evil one. You hear what he's saying? Father, don't remove them from the world because you've you've given me to them so that they would be powerful in the world. And so protect them on the mission that you've got for them because they need to be holy just as you're holy. They need to accomplish everything that you've had them to accomplish. See, the only reason that you would need to be protected from the evil one is if you're a threat to him. If you're not a threat, why in the world would you need protection? The only reason you'd be a threat to the one who opposes the work and the mission of God to redeem His creation is if your life is submitted to that very mission. So I'm convinced that the response of a heart that has a holy devotion to God is use me to do whatever you wish. There is no holiness apart from being a part of what God is doing in the world. There's a great picture of this, by the way, that comes in Jeremiah 29. Anybody ever know the verse Jeremiah 29.11? Can you say it? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to grow you and prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. Many of us have that verse somewhere in our houses on a wall somewhere. But it's interesting because why would God want us to know that He would protect us and to prosper us? It's only when we actually understand the verses that come before it, 1 through 10, that verse 11 starts to make sense. This is what it says. The context for this, obviously, just to let you know, is that the people of God, Israel at that time, were carried off into exile. They're an exiled people. So they're living amongst another nation called Babylon. They're on the margins of that society in a big way. And so they're wondering, has God forsaken us? Has He forgotten about us? Why in the world are we here? 
What are we to do? Maybe God will get us out. Maybe we don't have to be here for very long. I mean, do you ever kind of have that mentality or said that to yourself or to God? God, just come quickly because I don't want to be here any longer than I need to be. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to see the face of your Savior. But it should never be as a substitute for God making you holy and using you in this world. Because to do that is just to escape from His mission. And so he says to his people who are in exile, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those who I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, hey, you people who think you're forsaken, listen up because I have a message for you. And what he sells them is shocking. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. In other words, stick around for a while because you're not getting out of this thing anytime soon. And then he says this. And this this is so challenging just personally from my own heart. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You hear what God's saying? I've called you there for a reason. I have a purpose for you. So don't shrink back from it. Work towards its good in such a way that it displays what I'm like. Seek its peace because I want them to know my peace. Seek its prosperity because I want them to know that I'm a good provider. That they might come to me in their time of need. Trust in my power enough to know that the world will not make you dirty because you're in it. But that I will make the world clean because you're in it. So I've got to ask you, do you love and talk positively about the, care, about the people that God has carried you into their midst? Or do you criticize and tear down those who don't yet know Him? Do you point out their flaws or talk about them behind their back? Or do you love them and serve them and lay, their, lay your life down for them? Would the people that you work among and you live among who don't know Jesus, would they count you as a friend? I'm not talking, do you count them as a friend? That's the real test, right? We can call ourselves friends of a lot of people, and then behind our backs they go, that guy's a jerk. (laughs) Would they call you their friend? When they're in time of need, would they pick up the phone and dial your number? When they have a need in their home, would they come to your house to find that need fulfilled? Do they see tangible expressions of who God is and what He's like because they know you? Do you pray for them often? Do you lay your lives down for them? Do you seek their prosperity? 
for them to be lifted up, even though you may not receive any benefit from it. You will not be holy in any sense, in any way that God intends if you do not see yourself as sent to be a blessing to the context that you're in. And the great news is that we have been blessed because of what Christ has done for us. There is no way in which God did not serve our greatest need because He sent His Son, right? And so therefore, we can go in that blessing and be a blessing to everyone. Expend our lives in every way knowing that we don't need to look to the world to get our satisfaction, our sense of self, our, our anything, right? We've got everything that we need. And so we can take everything that we've gotten and we can serve in every way that people need. See, people need to see good news before they'll listen to good news. You go try talking about Jesus without demonstrating what the good news of the Gospel has done in your life and through your life to them and see what kind of result it gives. I'm guessing you won't bear much fruit. But if you do it in the power of the Gospel, laying your life down for people, putting their needs above your needs, you'll live the kind of life that earns a defense of the hope that you have within you. So let's kind of talk about an example of this. One of the ways that Mandy and I have really been challenged recently is um, in the area of our home. So you can think of any number of ways where God might want to bring about holiness in your life. It could be in your home. It could be in your family life. Um, it could be in your career. It could be in the way that you rest and recreate. It could be in your finances. For us personally, it was kind of in our home. Six to eight months ago, um, our home was, if I were to use one term to talk about it, it was a place of refuge. We had just invested some money in our house to get one of the rooms fixed up and completed. And it was just feeling like our home was kind of founded a place of completion, that we could rest there and kind of use it as a retreat from the world. Um, Soon after that, God started to toy with our idea of rest and, uh, (laughs) and started to change our hearts a little bit. When I was home, I don't... I didn't want to see anyone who wasn't part of my family. I just felt like I used so much of my time and energy when I'm not at home uh, to invest in other people. And in my selfishness and foolishness, I I thought the home is the one place that is off limits to the world. It's a place of solitude and sanctuary for my family. Sometimes chaos. Chaos. And so uh, we started to talk about life and holiness and being on God's mission, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when it was convenient, but every day of our lives. What does that look like? What does it mean for us? And so we started to say, we need to be a people who are entirely more open with our home than we normally were. We need to be a people that love 
others with our lives and not just with our words. And the people that we've lived among for six years, um, God has actually placed us here to start to do that work among them. And so over the last six months, we've actually been trying to create community with the people that we live around. In Jersey. (laughs) Impossible, right? As pe- we, we have no influence in our neighborhood. We're not part of the in-crowd. In we, we don't know the political situation. In fact, we were surprised at some of the political th- stuff that was going on in our, uh, in our, just in our town. But we said, all we're going to do is we're going to start to open up our home. And we got this idea just to start hosting a dinner every Thursday night. Just inviting our neighbors over, seeing what ways we can bless them, treating them like family. Um, and, and so we started to do that. Not perfectly, um, sometimes chaotically. Sometimes we get to the end of the night and we go, what was that all about? <laughs> you know, Just being more open with our home because God has blessed us with it and we want to use it for the benefit of others. So anyway, um, we've been doing this for a few months and we've had some neighbors kind of come through our doors and start to become part of our community, our life group. They're part of our lives now. And so uh, one of those neighbors, he was over on Thursday night, and uh, a couple people who were visiting our group got a chance to meet him. He's a wonderful guy who's critical of everything and very negative about the world. Um, I'm just being honest about it. And he would say the same thing, actually. But we've come to love him and to know him. Um, he's become somewhat of an uncle to Caleb, and we, when, when he comes over, we just say, we're going to cook dinner, and you guys play. And um, he's a guy that lives by himself, and his closest family member lives in Hawaii, just to give you an idea of, of the kind of uh, people that he's not surrounded with. Um, and, and so he, he lives most of his life alone. Um, we, we've been kind of welcoming him in this way for probably six months now, and uh, he was over for dinner on Thursday night. And um, kind of normal, you know, everyday thing. It didn't seem like anything major was happening. And a couple of people started to leave, and we were talking in the kitchen afterwards. And and he, out of the blue, he goes, wouldn't it be a crazy idea if I kind of moved in with you guys? (laughs) I mean, it's crazy, right? Kind of half-joking, but with like a touch of seriousness to it. Now, if you know anything about our house, we have two bedrooms and no pull-out couch, okay? Um, we're packed in as it is. And, and so, it, you know, it'd be an impossibility. So we're, you know, we're like, ha-ha, that'd be interesting, you know? Um, he goes, yeah, I know it's crazy, but, you know, I just love being around you guys. Um, we know that he's lonely. That's, that's primarily the, the lens that he sees his life through, is that he is living his life utterly alone. And what's the truth? He's not alone. Who's, who's waiting on the front porch of the kingdom for my neighbor, to his heavenly father? How much does God love him? A whole bunch. 
How much does he want him to know the love of a father, the acceptance and the grace that comes from the gospel, to, to be part of a family again that values his presence and treats him like he's welcome at the table and that he doesn't need to do or prove anything to be there. And so we just feel like God has called us to do that very same thing for those that don't yet know him. What he's really saying is, I feel differently when I'm around you guys because I feel like I'm accepted. What a beautiful picture of holiness, right? This isn't something that we're doing in and of ourselves. We, we feel like God is like 10 steps ahead of us with a rope and He is just pulling us in this direction. We think we can no longer use our home just to be a, a place of selfishness where we just get and receive and hoard all the blessings of it being our place. We need to see it as a place that God has given us to use as a, an environment of holiness. Not just for us, but for our neighbors and friends and those that don't yet know Him. It's something that God is doing in our hearts, really. Something that we've been just captured by. So we think we can no longer live this isolated existence anymore. And one of the things that we've been talking about doing is having an open door policy in our house. And if you've been by our house, you know that we have a big kind of picture window in the front and there's shades that open and close. And we thought, what if we just said you know, to our neighbors and those people that we know, hey, when those shades are open, it's an open house. You can come in. Anything that we're doing... If we're in an argument, if Kayla's being you know, crazy and running around naked, you're still f- free to come through the door. As long as it's only Caleb, yeah. In that case, the shades will be shut. Uh, the places I don't plan messages to go. <laughs> probably better that she's not here. (laughs) Yeah. What if we lived that kind of open existence so that others could feel like they could come into our lives without needing our permission to do so? Without feeling like we're separate? What do you think, what kind of effect do you think that would have on our neighborhood if it was that kind of home living on their street? Pretty drastic one, I would think. We're starting to see it. Something that God is doing with us. So I would encourage you, you know, for you it may not be your home, maybe it's your finances. And you grip your finances with everything that's within you because you think, I need to control and to manage this so well because if I don't and I screw up, there will be no recovery for me. I would encourage you, to set your mind on that, to see where your hope really lies, to know that God is actually a good provider and He gives you what you need and so you can be generous with what you've been given and use it for God's mission. Use it for the benefit of His people. Maybe your career. It may be your, the way that you celebrate. I don't know what it is for you, but I would encourage you to set your mind on that and to see how God might want you to be holy in it.
Let's ask him for help, shall we? Father, we come to you as people that need your help. We thank you that you're holy. I don't know if we grasp fully what that means, but what I do know is that there are angels and elders and all living creatures that are surrounded around your throne even as we speak, crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and wealth and wisdom and might. You are unlike us in every sense. And yet we're your people. You've ransomed us from the world through the precious blood of Christ that is powerful enough to redeem even our death so that we know that we will not face it alone, but that we'll see you on the other side of it. And I pray, God, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead would be at work in our hearts and in our lives to make us holy as you're holy. Whatever the area is that's going on in our minds right now, I pray that you give us hope that it can be restored and redeemed. And I pray that we would not be selfish with the work that you're doing in our hearts, but that we would take that work and we'd use it to bless other people in your name. Father, we need your help. So we cry out to you in worship. We cry out to you to restore us we thank you that in Christ we have the promise that you will. We ask in his name. Amen.